Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we're going to continue our conversation with Leo Batari about high-performing teams and what peer advisory groups can teach us about them. It's my pleasure to welcome Leo Batari back to the show. Leo is the founder and managing partner of Peer Innovation LLC. Leo is an award-winning author, keynote speaker, workshop facilitator, and podcaster. He also serves as an instructor for Rutgers University and opinion columnist, external advisory board member for CEO World Magazine. Prior to teaching for Rutgers, Leo was an adjunct professor for Seton Hall University, where he led graduate-level online learning teams and on-campus residencies in the areas of leadership and strategic communication. In April 2015, he was named Adjunct Teacher of the Year for its College of Communication and the Arts. Earlier in his career, Leo served in senior leadership positions at Mullen Lowe and Hill and Knowlton. In the mid-1990s, he founded a public relations agency. Leo earned a BA from Jacksonville University, an MA in strategic communication and leadership from Seton Hall University, and he completed his doctoral coursework at Northeastern University. It's my pleasure to welcome Leo back to the show. Oh, thank you, Tina. Great to be here. So we covered a lot of ground in our last segment together, and we talked about your three books. We talked about your really impressive background, and I'd love to delve more into your latest book, Pure Innovation, and also some of the learnings and teachings that you have both learned on your own as well as you know, shared with others, and we've had the privilege of, of all learning from you over the years. You know, one of the things that we did not touch upon in our last, you know, segment together was one of the things that you begin peer innovation talking about, which is the ladder of inference and the importance of shifting one's mindset, because clearly one of the cornerstones of your teachings are the importance of multiple perspectives, which we touched upon in our last segment, as well as having a we versus me mentality and dynamic. Can you walk us through the ladder of inference and how you open up peer innovation, talking about that and its importance in setting the tone for the rest of the book? Yeah, the ladder of inference has always been fascinating to me. It's Chris Ardrice's, you know, brainchild. And so what it basically answers the question or helps answer the question of how in the world can people see the exact same individual in the exact same event and, and come to entirely different conclusions about uh, what we all see through our own eyes, right? Mm-hmm. It's really kind of remarkable when you look at that. And it, it recognizes, first of all, you know, whenever I see things, when people talk about what you're going to get unbiased advice and you're going to get this and that, you know, there is no such thing. We, we all have biases. We just do. The important thing is to recognize what they are. And, and know what they are and actually be, you know, open about what those biases are. And then as we speak with others who obviously have different sets of biases in many respects, we can start putting together and creating a level of understanding about whatever situation or person 
and get a sense of why people have different points of views about this. But the ladder of inference is basically this idea that we observe, you know, like you and I could walk into a room, for example, and, you know, I'm noticing the fireplace and you're noticing, you know, something else entirely different in the room. And we would walk out, we would describe what we saw. And, you know, you're looking at different data points around this gorgeous room than I am in all likelihood. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, and then, you know, it's not only kind of the, the data we observe and then kind of what we select as being really important, but then we start creating meaning out of that data, right? We start looking at, oh, this room might be good for this type of an event, or it might be good for that, or it'd be, be really comfortable place to sit and read a book, whatever we <laughs> think about, but we come to kind of different conclusions on that. And because of that, because we go through that process, there's kind of a feedback loop around that, right? And so over time, we tend to start looking at the same things in kind of the same way that that we always do, you know, that so now I'm going to the room and I'm looking for where's the fireplace, right? So, you know, it, it's just a way of basically codifying and, and walking through kind of the process of how we see things, how we assign meaning to it, and how we adopt beliefs. And so I gave an example, of course, in the book of how people might have looked at Barack Obama when mm-hmm. he ran for office in 2008. Completely nonpartisan exercise here. But the point is that here was a, one woman and one man, one arguably, let's say, a Democrat, the other Republican. Here's how they saw the same person, the same attributes. Here's the meaning they assigned to those attributes. And here are the conclusions they came to about whether they would vote for him or not. So it's a it's kind of a fun exercise. And it's an interesting thing to look at with regard to why I think about anything. You know, <laughs> why, <laughs> what, what, why, where my beliefs come from and what, and, and what that looks like. You know, the thing is, though, we don't often sit down and do deep reflections about why we believe what we do or why we see things the way we do. So shy of that, just being open uh, to other people's ideas and opinions becomes, you know, really, really important, whether we're any kind of a group or team. Well, and you know, you, you've raised some really good points and ultimately you can't bridge that gap from being me to being we and you can't be a team, whether high performing or any team at all, unless there is a collective we, right? And and so it seems pretty clear to me, at least, that having multiple perspectives, being able to understand how you arrive at your own perspective, why that level of self-awareness is pretty important, particularly if you are looking to be a member of a high-performing team or a leader of a high-performing team, you need to understand that there are multiple perspectives. And also you may not agree with the multiple perspectives, but at least there's something that they bring to the dynamic of creating a team. And that seems to be pretty much the foundation of everything else. Yeah. You know, when we think about assessments, you know, we've all taken different assessments. We've taken like MBTI or maybe Strengths Finders, or uh, there's a new assessment that I'm doing some work with now with a gentleman named Francis Scholl called Squirkle. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that when we look at these assessments, not only for ourselves, but when we start sharing our results with other people and we start looking at theirs, you know, we, we can start maybe appreciating people's differences as real gifts. They are gifts to the team that they see the world differently, that they have different talents, that they have different ways of contributing to the team. Because in most cases, 
you know, to your point, we, we need one another. I mean, in all cases, we need one another. But, you know, when we think about, you know, being on a team and how important it is to recognize that whatever it is we're trying to do, the chances are we can only do it together and we can certainly do it better if we do it together. So seeing other people's differences and points of view uh, in a team situation like that as, as being gifts versus someone is kind of a pain in the ass to work with, you know, <laughs> because the fact that they, they tend to always do this or that or the other, it's important to kind of suspend judgment on those kinds of things and um, see if you can't create kind of some mutual understanding about how and why you see things the way you do. And, and that's pretty great. So switching gears a little bit, and I did warn you in advance that I was going to ask you about this, but one of my favorite parts of your book is where you talk about Apollo 13, the movie, and obviously Mm. it was based on a real life story. As you and I've discussed in the past, I am a systems engineer, industrial engineer by, by training. And I did take a number of classes and started my master's actually um, in safety engineering. And so when I saw that movie and when I see movies of a similar ilk, I sort of look at it, I think, through a different type of lens than maybe most people do. I would love to hear from you why you discussed Apollo 13 in your book and actually why you discussed it so early in the book. Clearly, it's an important discussion for you and for what you're trying to convey? Yeah. Um, so the movie was a lot of fun, um, for sure. You know, I even mentioned kind of the opening scene where they had that party. And, yes. <laughs> and, you know, because I think we've all been there, right? You have the big party and everyone goes home and the place is a wreck. And the last thing in the world you want to do before you go to bed is like trying to clean up the kitchen and clean up the whole house or whatever. And so they're sitting there. And so it was, um, you know, Jim Lovell and his wife, and they're just looking around and they're like, let's just sell the house. I mean, that seemed to be the better option, right? <laughs> Which, so it, there was just, you know, fun things like that about it. I think there was some good humor uh, in addition to the incredible story that's Apollo 13 that was obviously, you know, the, the story about a, a crude mission that was going to the moon that went badly, you know, pretty quickly. And in order to save the life of the crew, it involved a team working together on the ground, you know, to to make that possible with very limited time, only using the resources that were available in the ship. And one of the issues they were dealing with was um, high CO2 levels and uh, how they were going to combat that to keep the, the astronauts alive as they had to, you know, try to get them back to Earth. And it was just remarkable when you think about the way the team worked together and how they did it and basically coming up with a solution. And by the way, they had to now, you know, communicate the instructions of how to build this little apparatus that would um, drop the CO2 levels there and, and be able to explain it. There was no video. There was no, like I said, it would be like explaining to someone how to tie your shoe over the telephone but yet this was much more, much more complicated <laughs> and, and, and the, the sense of urgency about it and the pressure and everything was, was rather remarkable. But I think it really shows when you get a lot of different people together, you know, what they're capable of and how each of them on that team contributed to coming up uh, w- with the, with the solution. You know, I, I had mentioned also in the book, the, the idea of the exercise that I've done uh, at keynotes where I'll, I'll have a person in the audience 
you know, replicate the moment where their favorite sports team wins like the championship and, and by themselves in front of everyone, they have to like clap and scream and yell as they would have, whether they're sitting in the living room or, or imagining they're at the game. But then I ask everyone to join with that person thinking in their own minds about their favorite sports team winning the championship. And at the count of three, of course, the difference between one person making that sound and several hundred that blows the roof off the place. <laughs> and it shows what we are capable of doing when we do it together. You know, and all too often, even though we're part of a team or, or you know, we're, we're trying to fill the room with sound all by ourselves and all if we all, you know, all we need to do is just ask for a little help. And, and we can do it in rather extraordinary ways. And by the way, not feel nearly as self-conscious as that person who had to do it alone. <laughs> because when yeah. we're all doing it together, everyone's fine. You know, right, there. exactly. <laughs> well, you have done millions of keynotes, or at least it feels like you have, and you've interviewed a bunch of people. And, you know, I would love to hear, and I'm sure our audience would love to hear, we could spend hours going through more about your books and, and, and all of that. And I look forward to the opportunity to, to, to do that. And hopefully we'll be able to do it in person some point after COVID, but I would love to hear, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear any sort of anecdotes, stories you have either from experiences you've had interviewing people, the research that you've done, some of the workshops that you've led, the keynotes that you've done, would love to explore just a few stories and takeaways that have really been ingrained in your mind over over the years. So one of my favorite interviews from the podcast, well, there were two really um, that I want to bring up uh, that I think were really important for me. One of them was with Linda Darling-Hammond from Stanford University, one of the top education experts in the world. She was part of part of the transition team, uh, by the way, with Obama in term, in, um, in 2008. She's got 500 publications to her name. I mean, wow. think about that for a That's moment. Phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's off the charts. She's, she's amazing. And the fact that she sat down and we did this interview together. And by the way, a fascinating backstory on this is that the day that I interviewed Linda Darling-Hammond for my podcast was the day that the U.S. Senate was holding confirmation hearings for Betsy DeVos on Capitol Hill. And I thought to myself, here I am sitting down with a woman who knows far more about education than any of those U.S. senators are experiencing right now. And it was, it was true. And, and not, nothing partisan about it. I mean, there's very few people that know, that have the depth of understanding and knowledge about education that Lyndon Dolan Hammond does. But one of the things she talked to me about was the fact that she said, you know, when you have professors who really work well together and collaborate effectively, that the research is clear that they are by far uh, better able to create more collaborative environments in their classrooms. And we talked about that is the same holding true for CEOs. And I think it was one of those things that just was yet another piece of evidence about how powerful it is not only that we work together, but that we in this kind of collateral learning, unintentional kind of way, start modeling those behaviors in a way that really impacts others. The second uh, person I want to mention is Angela Myers. Mm -hmm. Angela Myers does this incredible work largely with um, uh, young people on, on mattering. And she has a site called choosetomatter.org. And the idea of mattering is just literally to accept responsibility for how much I matter. So this is where, as an individual member, this is where we talk about the power of me 
all right? And, and that how the power of we begins with me, it's recognizing that I am here not to fill a chair, not to just, you know, perform a role. I'm here to make a difference. And it, it goes to that story that, um, you know, I explained in the book. We think about this, right? Um, I'm with a group of CEOs and we're talking about having the right people in the room and the right behaviors. And the conversation goes to attendance and the importance and the value of being here. Well, as I'm, as we're all talking about this and I'm in the front of the room, I could feel the person to the left of me. Uh, we'll call him Richard. And he was, <laughs> I mean, he was getting agitated. You could feel with just the whole conversation. And then as the conversation kind of continued and it wasn't me kind of dragging it on, it was just, you know, some of the members just talking about it, how important it is. And all. Well, finally Richard stands up and literally says, look, I'm here when I can be here. I'm the one paying the dues. And he goes on. He went on for like a minute and a half and then finally says at the end, you know, and when I'm not here, I'm the one who loses, you know, and then he sits down. So it was in, in this kind of now what moment, right? So <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, what he said at the very end is what gave me an opening. And I turned to a member on the other side of the table and I just said, hey, would you mind just for a moment giving me one minute on what's lost when Richard can't be here at the meeting? And the person's like, whoa, well, when Richard's not here, he provides this perspective and he does that. And, you know, and then I went to a second member who did the same thing. Um, and then I went on to a third. By the time I got to that third member, Richard was literally welling up in tears. He had no idea. He knows his CEO, he means a whole lot to his organization, but had no real grasp of how much he meant in that room and how much everyone depended on him and his very, you know, and his unique perspective. To, to really bring things to the table, you know, for everyone. And so I looked at Richard and I said, look, I didn't do that to show you up. I said, I could have asked that question about any one of you. And you all would have responded exactly the same way. That's because you, you all matter, you know, and once you own that, once you recognize that you are here um, because you, uh, you know, deliver something of yourself that no one else brings to the table. So it's like a jazz ensemble that if you start taking instruments away, it's never going to sound the same. I said, every one of you matters. And the sooner that you all own that and recognize that, <laughs> the better off you're all going to be for one another. And so that was, that was a, a, you know, a huge thing. And I think much of that was born out of those early conversations back in 2017. She's been a guest on the show a few times as well about just reflecting a little bit and recognizing how much I matter and tapping into the unique contribution that you make among any group of people that you happen to be with at a given time. And so I would say those two stories in particular have been drivers for the work and why I do it and how I think about it. You know, those are both amazing stories. There's something that's really resonating with me as it relates to the second story that you shared, which is this work that you do there really isn't a we if there isn't a me, right? And right. and and so, you know, obviously you need a we to have a team and then we can maybe start the conversation about how to become a high-performing team. And that's something I've written about too is high-performing teams most recently with my husband in our column in Chicago mm. Lawyer Magazine a few months ago. But you also don't have a we without a me. And I guess- given your conversation and your experience, I mean, that was a very powerful session you had with the team and the, and the folks that you led. How do you teach somebody to recognize that they matter? I mean, that, that to me is a really, it sounds so simple, 
but yet it's so complex. And when you start peeling the onion on that, you realize that a lot of issues that some people have on a personal level really get down to the issue of self-love and self-awareness, as well as realizing that they matter. How do you relay that to somebody? So I like when the members can relate that to one another. So oftentimes I've seen groups, uh, for example, where uh, let's say the person's been with the, with the group for six months. So they've been there for a year. And I think this is always kind of a nice thing to do twice a year. And it's literally, hey, you've been with the group six months. You've been with the group a year. You know, congratulations, blah, blah, blah. And, and then you just, everyone goes around the table and they're asked to express, you know, what this person means to this group and what it means to everyone there and how they contribute and what that looks like. And the feedback is always just really humbling. I think that, that anyone would get. And you start really recognizing how much you matter to everyone around that room. And, and to hear that from time to time and make sure that you're telling one another how much they matter. And, and if someone misses a meeting, it isn't, you're going to get mad at them for this in the meeting. It's just going to say, we missed you. You know, we missed your voice. We missed your insights. And, 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 you know, tapping into that, I think being far more powerful, but I think when groups tend to take the time to recognize individual members for the gifts uh, that they are bringing uh, each and every month. And I think the same holds true. Imagine if more teams did that in companies where from time to time, we'd all just did a round robin around the table and said, hey, here's, here's Sally here. You know, tell Sally you know, a little bit about what she's meant to you and what she's meant to this team over the past year. It's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. So we mentioned COVID earlier and how you wrote a good chunk of peer innovation during lockdown. We're hopefully on the tail end of COVID, which has clearly proven to be one of the most challenging periods in our history. Some would say that, and we touched on this earlier, that COVID for many has been about survival and about getting by. And your discussion about high-performing teams, we versus me, and all the principles that we've been discussing for the past almost hour now, um, some would say that those really need to take a back seat to what has been for many just being in survival mode. What would you say to those people who think that what we're talking about today is sort of like an icing on the cake, something that is best discussed when conditions maybe better and more conducive to really trying to fine tune a team and trying to make our workplaces better than they are today? I think the number one thing to recognize, and I think that COVID helped us with this in many respects, is to recognize that we're not just fellow employees, that we're actually fellow human beings. And I've probably never seen more CEOs begin meetings now by asking, how are you doing versus where's that report or what are you doing? Or did you hit that KPI? You know, and it's really going around the table and tapping into the shared humanity that exists where people are juggling, having to do, you know, a, a lot of work, you know, from home and to try to keep up. And at the same time, they're probably homeschooling their kids and worried about elderly parents or uh, a host of things that, you know, fall upon us just as people to try to survive and try to make sure that we can find opportunity in adversity. And so 
you know, and adversity tends to bring us together. Um, now, there are some teams out there where productivity was up. And, you know, I think for the more savvy leaders and savvy CEOs, they recognize that that's not sustainable, at least managing things the way kind of we typically always do, you know, that we've got to look at how do we combat burnout, for example? How do we make people feel less isolated? How do we, you know, make people, you know, not feel so insulated and so siloed, you know, in their jobs? You know, someone was asking me about this whole idea of here they are working from home. Like it's tough enough sometimes <laughs> to, to not feel obscure, you know, when you're in the office all the time, let alone when you're sitting at home and you're working real hard. And people are wondering like, OK, wh what, what's really going on here? And also ways to inspire people. And, you know, one of the ones that I didn't mention in the book, but I would bring this forward as well for leaders is really working that much harder to give people a sense of belonging. and. I think when we start looking at that, and, and I do think, by the way, and I, I want to mention this also, that Zoom, although, you know, it's been, you know, difficult, and a lot of people are, are sick of Zoom calls. Um, by the way, we didn't have Zoom or Slack or Microsoft Teams back during the 2008 financial crisis. So imagine if the pandemic had hit then, and we didn't have these tools, you know, to work with, right? But now when we are engaging one another on a Zoom call, instead of going into central workplace, we're basically inviting people into our homes, you know, where they can hear you know, the dog barking or they can hear, you know, whatever's going on in the background. They see different artifacts on the walls that reflect who you are as a person. And I think we've tapped into our shared humanity in a way that's powerful. I think for those who have not and, and where this remains difficult, I think we have to really re-examine how we are working together and treating one another as people versus just coworkers. And I think for those who have pivoted, I think they're gonna to continue to work even harder because the longer this goes, I think the greater we need to use our imagination about how we give people, again, not only that sense of, of, of being connected and, and, and noticed and seen, but again, I think that real sense of belonging is, um, you know, I think that's, that's what we owe people who have done an unbelievable job by and large of getting so many organizations through this pandemic in a way that's been rather remarkable. I could not agree with you more. And I think, you know, it's funny, you, um, you know, actually preempted what my next question was going to be, which was, <laughs> what do you think are the biggest challenges right now for high performing teams? And you've touched on a lot of that. I'm not sure if you have anything else you'd like to add um, as we hopefully emerge from COVID and take the learnings we've had, do you think there are any other, you know, challenges that any team may have, let alone high performing teams? I wasn't sure if there was anything else you wanted to add on that point. I do. I think that the, the hard part isn't, you know, so let's say that someone decides to do one of these workshops or, or, or they did something on their own, right? But they had intentional conversations around the five-factor framework or just around their own framework. I think having that not just be kind of a one and done and what people don't even remember three weeks later uh, is a challenge. I think that people need to um, look at how do we all these things, all these promises we made to ourselves and to one another about how we want to be and how we want to, you know, work together and be together going forward. How do we make sure that we 
that stays top of mind for us? How, how do we make sure that we're really practicing on a daily basis, all of these kinds of things, that we have attention detail around that and that we're committed to one another? You know, when we look at high-performing teams, again, in sports, business, or whatever, the team members' commitment to one another and the personal responsibility they accept for their role uh, on that team, um, the higher that is, the, the better the team performs. And there's just no question about it. So I would say that. I'd say it's one thing to get something started. It's another thing to keep it going. So what's next for you? You have done so much. You love what you do. You've learned a lot. You've taught us a lot. You have three books under your belt. What's next for you? So I definitely want to continue uh, a lot of the work that I'm doing with peer advisory groups, and whether that's for uh, CEOs or key executives. I think I have a lot to bring to those groups, but I learn something every time. I go to a new group and it's always fun and just really always keeping my eyes and ears open for things that, you know, I can then, I think in 99 times out of 100, translate into my work with high-performing teams. And I'm certainly doing a lot more work now with high-performing teams. I want to continue to grow in that area because I think that is where some real sustainable and powerful outcomes, you know, can result. Uh, and, um, yeah, so that's, what's next for me. I want to continue. I've never enjoyed, you know, my days professionally as much as I I do right now. I absolutely love it. I love meeting the people that I get to meet. I love what incredible things people are trying to do out there and recognizing that if they can, you know, do it together and do it in a way that, um, you know, truly recognizes, you know, the gifts that we all bring to the table. Um, it's just, just great fun. So do you think you have another book in you? Um, you know, I didn't write the first book with an idea to write the second, nor did I write the second thinking there was a third coming. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, no, I mean, that you know, what happened, I mean, the first one was very much for a reason, right? This idea of we wanted to try to create a narrative around how and why peer groups work so well. So people would make it part of their consideration set. Then I do the you know, the, the whole year of the peer podcast, which by the way, was named for that reason. So, because I'd never done podcasting before, Randy Kentrell was kind enough to, you know, invite me on and get me involved, you know, with it. But I was like, I need an exit strategy. So I figured the year of the peer, it's going to go one year, that'll be that. (laughs) (laughs) And then if we want to continue it some other way or some other form, which is what we ended up doing, because now we've got the peer innovation podcast. Um, you know, but but interviewing all those people and what I learned from them was so incredible that I thought I've got to share this. So that's really where what anyone can do, you know, came from. And it was this idea that people, every one of these people that I met, you included, by the way, all really successful, you know, but none of you did it alone. You know, the the idea that when that suggestion ever came up, hey, did you ever did you pretty much get where you are all by yourself? And they would laugh at the idea. Of course not. You know, they countless people helped them to get where they wanted, where they are today. And yet, you know, all they can do really, in most cases, they can't pay those people back. They do try to pay it forward. Mm-hmm. But I thought that those stories and, and what it meant and the fact that, you know, and for many of them, by the way, and I think for most successful people, at least according to Joe Henderson, who wrote about this in 1976, basically said that you look at a lot of really successful people and it said, that isn't that you know, they can leap tall buildings in a single bound or they can do superhuman things. They said they just do the things that anyone can do that most of us never will. 
And so the premise of what anyone can do is really about saying to someone, you know what, if I enlist the support of others and I engage them and I make public what it is I want to do, then I will be far more likely to do the things that anyone can do more often and thus help make me you know, uh, or, or make any one of us as individuals more successful. But then, you know, throughout the workshops that we're now running concurrent with all this, and then there's this work around, you know, how much the individual benefits from the help of others. Then it, then you see how these kind of things come together where now the power of, of, of we, of, of a group or team begins with me. And the workshops just showed how much, this was applicable to teams. And by the way, I was doing a lot of work with cross-functional work teams at the time where I was able to pressure test a lot of this. And it's incredible. And that's what I like to do now is back. I think the, the way to start in an organization is is right at the C-suite, just to work with the, the, the CEO and the direct reports there. And we go through and have these kind of intentional conversations. And we, we, show what that looks like and how that may work. And then if they, if they love it, which, you know, in, in most cases, I think when they go through this process, it's something now that they want their other teams to experience as well. And I don't do that because it's a great way of building, you know, <laughs> you know, business over time with a company. But the reality is that in, in most cases, starting it anywhere else, you're never going to get the buy-in that's going to be necessary to make it really, really work throughout an entire system, if you will. So mm-hmm. uh, it really does help to to do that uh, from the top. And it's, you know, again, you know, I love it. But no, I don't have a fourth book in mind. Uh, the trilogy <laughs> sounds like that would be, you know, fun. But you never know. Like I said, I, the, something else could kind of strike me as like, wow, this is really worth sharing. And, and that's really kind of how I approach all of these things, that there's content that I think doesn't need to just live in my head somewhere. And by the way, all of this stuff isn't really from me so much. This is comes from all of the people that I've ever talked to. This is just, you know, I become kind of a filter or a conduit or whatever you want to you know say about that and just try to take everything that I've gotten from all these people and just try to express it in a way that um, that just makes it easy for others. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because I really view the thought leadership that I do, whether it's the podcasts or the columns that I write, really, I I very much see it the same way that I'm the conduit for the learnings that I've picked up from others, observations I've made, and it just sort of all comes together. And if I were a betting woman, I'd say you have at least one more book in you. So I, I look forward to continuing to you know, work with you, partner with you, and to watch what has been a really amazing evolution over the past few years. Well, thank you. And I've, you know, one of the you know great benefits of, of all this work too, is that this was where, as you know, my cousin Kathleen mm-hmm. introduced us and, you know, see, so all along the way you get to meet great people too. So it's been really a great journey. So we are actually at the end of our time together, which is a major bummer. I know there will be a next time soon, but in the meantime, as we round out our time together, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners and where can they find you? So I would say final thoughts uh, for our listeners is to really be thinking and reflecting on your own about what you bring to any group or team that you happen to be part of and asking yourself, how can I bring my best self each and every day 
you know, to everyone around me you know, to accomplish what we're all trying to work on together. And I think that's a really good start. As far as finding out more information about me, you can go to peerinnovation.co, which is P-E-E-R, uh, N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N.co, or leobatari.com, which is L-E-O-B-O-T-T-A-R-Y.com. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. You know, and if you're interested in, in the work and having a workshop, you know, at, uh, at your company team and developing a, an action plan that I think can really be sustainable uh, in your organization, then let me know. Leo, always a privilege and a pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed our time together today, and I really look forward to next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversation with Leo Batari and that you will join us next week for our next interview. I am your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.